The Formula One season heads into the summer break on the back of a driving masterclass by Max Verstappen as Red Bull strategy prevails once again. Mercedes grabs back-to-back double podiums. Ferrari wishes it had a time machine. And Fernando Alonso is moving to Aston Martin. Maybe someone should have told Alpine. All this and more on this episode of Unlap. Uh, He's also a two-time world champion and one of the highest rated drivers in F1. We talk about the best drivers. We include Fernando Alonso. And Bonotto said we're not going. We don't need to make any changes to the team. And you just think, well, you do. Again, Max continues to win, but Ferrari steals all the headlines. Uh, sorry, I just uh, Piastri's just tweeted that he won't be he won't be driving for, uh, Alpine next year. It's just popped up. Welcome to Unlapped, an ESPN F1 show. I'm Katie George. He's Nate Saunders, and that's Lawrence Edmondson. And here here to break down all the weekend's action and take a look back at what has been a roller coaster ride of an F1 season so far. Guys, how about just a wellness check first? It's officially summer break. Nate Lawrence, how are you both feeling? Pretty good. This is the point of the year where you suddenly realize how many races there's been. You kind of think there's three weeks off now, so your body starts to just shut down a little bit. But yeah, feeling good. Definitely needed the summer break. I think Lawrence is feeling the same. Yeah, we had four races in July, which doesn't seem like it should be possible. Like, I always was only four weekends in a month, but there were five in that one and four of them were race weekends. So that was pretty intense. And it hasn't stopped yet. We've still got news uh, the day after the Hungarian Grand Prix, which is usually the moment where we can all start to relax. So, yeah, it's all kicking off still. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Before we hit the race, let's get to the news. Nate, as everyone got to Budapest in preparation for the Hungarian Grand Prix, the world was rocked by Sebastian Vettel announcing his retirement. But it's the announcement that followed on Monday that I want to hit first. Fernando Alonso is heading to Aston Martin next year to fill Seb's seat. And it sounds like he may or may not have told Alpine that it was happening. So what is going on? Where are we? And where the heck is Fernando Alonso right now? Yeah, I mean, this has been a remarkable 48 hours. And it seems like Fernando Alonso is playing his own little kind of game of succession with Alpine and with Aston Martin and everything. So from what we understand, I mean, it was funny that news announcement. I, I got that as I put my phone down in those little brown tubs in security at Budapest Airport. And I saw it flash up and I suddenly was like, I might need my phone back. And it started moving away as, as I saw it. So it literally could. And there was other journalists in the queue with me and we were all panicked running through the terminal trying to find a place to actually write that up. Um, but yeah, it kind of came out of the blue. I mean, Fernando Alonso seemed like the best candidate for that position, but no one really thought as the week went on. I mean, I had somebody, a fairly senior member of the paddock, say that that definitely wasn't going to happen on the Friday. And everyone seemed to be saying oh, it's going to be Mick Schumacher, it's going to be someone else. But Mick never seemed to be a really great fit. And what Lawrence Stroll, who's the owner of Aston Martin, has basically done here is taken one more champion and replaced him with another. But like you say, the interesting thing is kind of the way that deal came about. And from what we understand, and from what Otmar Safnauer, who's Alpine team boss, said, that team found out that news the same way I found that news out, by seeing that press release come through, the Fernando Alonso signed a multi-year deal. And what's fascinating about that is that today, Safnauer uh, had a small uh, press session with a you know a couple of journalists uh, which he in, in, and he kind of bizarrely explained that the team didn't know that. You know, he elaborated on that more, and that Alonso through the weekend gave him and senior management assurances that he was going to sign the deal they put in front of him. Now it sounds like 
the contentious point for Alonso was how long that deal was going to be. We know that Oscar Piastri, who I know we're going to talk about in a little bit as well, is waiting in the wings there for this Alpine drive. Alonso wanted, wanted the, the contentious issue was how long he's going to stay there. It seems like the deal they had on the table for him was to stay in 2023 with an option on both sides then to extend to 2024. That gives both sides flexibility to get out if things don't go well in 2023. And he it sounds like had given Alpine plenty of assurances that he's going to sign that deal. And the last thing he said to Otmar Safnauer when he left on Sunday was, yeah, just go, I just want my lawyer to look over it. No problem. It's all going to be fine. So Otmar Safnauer, you know, you take the man at his word, don't you? You think, okay, fine. And Otmar's obviously woken up in the morning, probably maybe was having his breakfast, nice relaxing morning in Budapest. And then that news has come through and it's really caught Alpine completely unawares. It's kind of pulled the rug from under their feet a little bit. And it's set off a really interesting chain of events uh, further down the line with other drivers. Um, but it sounds like Alonso has basically gone off on a yacht in the Greek islands and is now just shutting himself away from any calls that are being made to him from Alpine. Seems like he's just ignoring it. And, you know, the world is burning around Fernando Alonso and he's just, he's just out enjoying himself on holiday, which I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty ballsy thing to do. I mean, I, I quite like the deal myself for Alonso, but the way he's gone about it, um, you know, you would, He's burnt a few bridges at other teams when he's left before, and this kind of this is another team he's leaving in Formula One with a bad, you know, leaving a bad taste as he leaves. So the the races, the months after the summer break are going to be interesting because here's the interesting thing with contracts in Formula One: this is a deal he signed for 2023, so he's still got to see out the season with Alpine. So I'm not sure how awkward that is going to be, but can you imagine someone turning up to work just you know a couple of weeks after they basically ghosted you? and signed a contract to drive somewhere else. Fascinating situation that we always get in Formula One. And um, yeah, I think that's going to really, it's going to really be interesting to see how it plays out because you'd imagine things might shift towards Ocon now a bit more. He'll get a bit more attention in terms of the car and stuff like that. But yeah, what a way to kick off what we traditionally call silly season. The silliest bit of news that we could have possibly hoped for is brilliant. I think real quick, that's what's so fascinating to new American fans who are coming into the sport is that dynamic that at summer break, you see a lot of contracts and allegiance change. And yet you have to go back to work for the team that you just told, hey, by the way, I'm not going to work for you anymore. And I'm actually going to shut off my phone and stop responding to your calls or text. So Lawrence, knowing what you know about Fernando Alonso and some of the past teams he has driven for, are you surprised with the way that he has gone about this or handled the situation? No, not really. I think Nate alluded to that. And I think the thing I love about this story the most is that apparently Fernando Alonso is on a boat off a Greek island, just like watching all of this kind of go on. And he's made his decision. He's made his uh, his move. But this is how it works. It's always the same with the driver market. You have a few drivers who are key to it. Sebastian Vettel kicked this off by making his retirement announcement. And then it was everyone looking at, well, what's Aston Martin going to do? Who can they approach? Could they really get Fernando Alonso away from Alpine? That happened remarkably quickly. That was also a surprise. And another thing Otmar Zaf now said is that he saw Fernando leaving the Aston motorhome, having had a conversation, and he thought, well, you know, understandable. He's got to know all of his options. He's got to discuss what's available. But he didn't really think much more of it. He certainly didn't think that an announcement was coming the following Monday. So it's, it's, it's great. But I, I understand why Fernando's done what he's done. I mean, if you look at the two options that were there, Aston Martin and Alpine, you've got to remember the likes of Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari are all closed off and probably will be for some time. Um, and you look at those two options and both could move closer to the top three, but it's really hard to know which one will do it. If you look at Alpine, well, at the moment they are closer 
Aston Martin are much further behind. So you look at it on the face of it and you think, well, why would you move backwards down the grid? But the reality is Aston Martin is investing a huge amount of money into its team. It's made some really big signings on the technical side, including Dan Fallows, who was essentially Adrian Newey's understudy at Red Bull for many, many years. And so all the pieces are falling into place at Aston. And what Fernando wants is he knows probably neither of those teams are going to be fighting for you know, victories. They might fight for podiums next year, but victories and championships, almost certainly not. It's going to have to be a longer term program. And what Alpine were offering was one year definitely with us. And then if you're still performing at the same level, and Otmar said they're a little bit concerned about Fernando's age, now 41, what would he be like as he gets older? And naturally, you know, certain things like reactions do decay over time. So they said, if you're still performing at the same level, then we can give you another year. But it was an option. So there was no guarantee. Meanwhile, it sounds like Aston Martin have said, look, here, here's a multi-year deal. That's what we've been told. That could be two years. It may be two years plus an option. It may even be three guaranteed years. Uh, come and drive for us. And, you know, you can be a part of building this team with all this investment coming in. So I understand Fernando's uh, decision. I am i don't really understand the logic of not informing Alpine at all before, before the... <laughs> The announcement was made. Um, I think that's just classic Fernando Alonso. And uh, yeah, um, he doesn't mind burning a few bridges in the sport. Um, but uh, he's also a two-time world champion and one of the highest rated drivers in F1. If we talk about the best drivers, we include Fernando Alonso, along with Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc. So he had a good hand to play. <laughs> he's played it in a very entertaining, but also I think quite a strong way. If you understand why Fernando Alonso has done what he has done, do you understand who set all of this off being Sebastian Vettel? Do you understand why Sebastian is retiring? Sebastian was really clear on this, um, that really he sat down, looked at it, and uh, he wants to put his family first. And also there was a few issues with being a Formula One driver that didn't really match up with his views on the world. Over the last few years, we've seen him become increasingly concerned about the environment. And it's really hard to spin Formula One as a green sport. I know there's areas where it can help. Uh, the sport is moving to uh, renewable fuels and sustainable fuels from 2026 onwards, but that's still a long way away. And so I think he looked at it increasingly and it just didn't match up with what he wanted. Um, he did say that uh, that he is a bit scared about not being a Formula One driver. He's been a Formula One driver for so long. He's actually worried about what comes next, a potential void in his life. But he's also confident that with his family around him, he'll be able to find uh, ways to, to, to fill that. There is an interesting element of, you know, I really doubt that Fernando Alonso managed to negotiate a contract in whole in those, you know, four days between Sebastian Vettel retiring and Fernando leaving. So perhaps Aston Martin were already having chats. I suspect they were. I'm sure they were looking at their options because there was always this risk that Sebastian would leave. Uh, it's, there's a little bit of a question in my mind over what came first. You know, did, uh, did Al Alonso kind of muscle his way in there a bit? But from what we've heard so far, it sounds like it was Sebastian's decision. And what's more, I think he's absolutely and entirely at peace with that decision. I like you know, that conspiracy theory from Lawrence because <laughs> in 2014, it was Vettel, Vettel agreeing a deal with Ferrari when Alonso was there that kind of pulled the rug from under Alonso's mm. feet. So this might be like, you know, a dish best served cold is, is what they say, isn't it? Alonso's final mm. kind of act in, in getting there. I'm not, I mean, it's, that, that's, a great, that's a great theory to get into, so I buy into that as well. Americans, I think, are jaded at this point when it comes to pro athletes announcing their retirements because they just a couple of months later decide that they're no longer going to retire and they come back into the game. But I, I think it's safe to say that this is it for Sebastian Vettel. So having said that, 
obviously people will really relish in the fact uh, that we've still got however many races left with him on the grid. What are you going to miss most, the two of you, in covering a guy like Sebastian Vettel? Nate, I'll start with you. Well, I think Vettel, the thing that was remarkable about Vettel over the past few years is is the human side of him has really come out even more than Mm -hmm. it used to. And I think when, when he was at Red Bull and Ferrari, it was... I think with a lot of drivers, when they're at the front, you they're a lot more cagey. You know, when they're when they're championship contenders, it's a lot harder. I think Lewis is an exception here, but it's a lot harder to see the real person when they're when they're at the front. They don't want to reveal too much of themselves. But it's been remarkable seeing Seb kind of embrace all of these causes, especially in the environment and you know the 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 stand he took on LGBT uh, issues and stuff like that. And just generally, just a really nice guy. You know, just somebody who seems very genuine um, and quite a rare quite a rare breed, I guess for. Um, for Formula One, so I think in in terms of the recent recent past, he's always been one of the more interesting drivers, and I, I'm always worried about what drivers will be like when we lose Sebastian and Lewis. You know, these guys that are willing to talk about difficult issues. Um, he had no issues doing that, and for a journalist, that's always a great thing to hear. So I think that will be it. And um, you know, on the driving side, I think we we never really saw the best Vettel since he left Red Bull. Really, we saw moments at Ferrari, but he kind of you know on on the track side, he was kind of I think not not getting worse, but the mistakes were becoming more and more frequent. So uh, I won't miss so much having to sit through that and seeing Vettel spin out of practice sessions and stuff like that. But yeah, just just the presence of him in Formula One is you know, it was really enjoyable having him there. And I think it is a loss for the grid to not have him around, actually. I completely agree with Nate. I think he's just a different character. If he stands out from the rest of them. So many young drivers coming through now, I think, are afraid to say what they really feel on issues. Uh, but Sebastian, over time, I guess because he's been in the sport for so long and he's a little bit older, no longer worries about that. And that's refreshing. And also someone who can bring up, say, an issue like the health of bees in Austria. You know, he he had a, he went and uh, set up a, a bee hotel near the Austrian circuit because uh, he wanted to highlight the fact that, you know, a lot of uh, bees' natural habitats are under threat. That's not something you expect when you come to a Formula One circuit. It's not something you expect to write about or hear about or have a driver talking about, but he was there doing it. So, um, you know, he really had a kind of clarity of thought in the last few years on on what was important to him. And I think that is ultimately what led to his decision to retire. But uh, that will also be missed because, uh, you know, not all the drivers um, have uh, really have interests outside the sport that they really care about and that they're so eloquent about. Yeah, he's a fan favorite for good reason and certainly will be missed uh, by the end of the season. All right, so Alonso's heading to Aston Martin to fill that seat. That leaves an opening in the Alpine alongside Esteban Ocon, and I feel like we already know who's going to fill that seat, Nate. What do we know at this point? Well, we do, and I think we also don't. I think there's a there's a degree of uncertainty here. So Oscar Piastri has always been the, I mentioned him earlier, he's kind of been the guy waiting in the wings behind Alonso. And it's kind of been a weird situation. Alpine have had him as a junior driver and he's hugely rated. I mean, he's probably the most exciting young talent to come through since we got Russell, uh, Norris and Albon all coming through in the same year. And then obviously we had Leclerc the year before that. He's in that kind of mold in terms of a young driver. Um, Alpine have had this weird situation where they've been trying to find him another seat away from Alpine for a while because they wanted to extend Alonso. Now that, today they said Alpine is... uh, Piastri is replacing Alonso at Alpine. So on on the surface of it, it looks pretty pretty cut and dry. But the the interesting thing is from and 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 we were slightly late starting the recording because this actually happens <laughs> shortly before we were meant to record. When Alpine made that announcement, there's a lot that's been going on behind the scenes. So I think the doubt around Alonso, the, the doubt that existed before Vettel's retirement and and in those days after, 
prompted Piastri and his manager, Mark Webber, who used to race for Red Bull, to seek other options. So they were talking strongly with Williams earlier in the year. Doesn't look like Nicholas Latifi is going to stay there, but that that was heavily rumoured and they seem to be pushing that story to see if it would force Alpine's hand. But Zach Brown at McLaren is a huge fan of Oscar Piastri and it sounds like, um, and with ESPN, we've had sources tell us that Piastri has some kind of deal signed with McLaren for next season. Now, the actual contents of what that deal would be is interesting because they've basically signed a deal when he already had a deal with Alpine that said, if we can promote you, we will. Uh, and obviously that's now what they're trying to do. However, the announcement we got with Alpine very curiously did not come with a quote from Piastri and he hasn't tweeted about it. I mean, this should be a kid who has just basically been told you're driving in Formula One next year. This is, you know, the, the achievement. dream. Yeah, your dream has come true. You know, this is like, this would be like somebody being drafted number one and just not saying anything, not tweeting about it, being like, I don't want to talk to anyone. You'd be like, there's something not right here with this, okay? Like, so there's an element of doubt, I think, that Piastri is convinced he's going to be driving at Alpine next season. That then opens up a whole other element to this. Of, of course, we've talked about Daniel Ricciardo before. But if McLaren have signed that deal... That's because they want to get Piastri into that seat and they want to get Ricardo out of his current seat, which sounds very difficult for them to do. It sounds like they have to do that and pay quite a lot of money to do so. Now, I think this actually could end up being that we just see these guys switch eventually. That would be my early prediction as we see Piastri go to McLaren, Ricardo go back to Alpine, which I actually think would be kind of the change of or the return to a former team that he kind of needs maybe to, to revive things. But at the moment, it looks like we're going to get this tug of war between McLaren and Alpine because both of them, it sounds like, think they have a contract of some sort with him. Alpine's was signed way before. That's existed for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But Zach Brown in IndyCar recently signed a driver called Alex Palau from Chip Ganassi to his IndyCar team, despite the fact that Palau had a contract with Chip Ganassi. So this is very much in the, the, the kind of the Zach Brown of school of doing business right now. He doesn't mind kind of doing stuff like this and signing somebody who might have a deal elsewhere. So I think Piastri looks like the man who will take the Alpine gig but at this stage there's enough of a question mark there to for us to to at least say that it's not completely certain so zach brown aside lawrence is that normal business that you sign somebody to a contract of sorts but you haven't actually ousted your current driver who also by the way still has a contract in hand no i think that is more the zach brown uh way of doing business not that, I don't think that happens with, with with most teams what we do usually see and it's very much the case is that Young drivers who show a lot of potential um, are picked up by teams early on. So in Alpine's case, it was four years ago with Oscar Piastri. He then went and won Formula 3, Formula 2 in consecutive years. He had Formula Renault before that. So he had this great period of success. Uh, but then he got to winning Formula 2. And the rule they have in Formula 2 is that if you win that, you can't race again in Formula 2 the next year. And Alpine, when Piastri was clearly quite ready to make the step up to F1, had Alonso a knock-on in the car for this year. So they weren't able to give him a seat. So this is what this is where the kind of difficulty has come from, is that they've put the money behind his career, they've helped him get to this point, but they haven't been able to offer him a drive at the end of it. Meanwhile, of course, we had this Alonso thing, as we talked about earlier. He was giving all the signs to Alpine uh, earlier this year that, yes, I'll stay for another year. Yes, you know, the contract's nearly done. Let me take it away to my lawyers. We'll just go through the last few bits. So they thought, well, gosh, well, what do we now do with Piastri? We've got this driver, uh, you know, who clearly is a future talent. I mean, potentially, uh, judging by his junior career, on a level with the very top drivers. Um, yet, they can't find a place for him. So they were looking at Williams. They were trying to put him in there, find a seat 
because we think Nicholas Latifi is on his way out, find a seat alongside Alexander Albon there. That's what George Russell did with Mercedes, remember? He spent, I think, three years at Williams before he got the uh, push up to Mercedes. So that's not unusual business. But yeah, the uh, the kind of signing contracts with two teams, that is. But it also just shows you how good Piastri is. You know, not many drivers can command this kind of interest yeah. uh, before they've even stepped on a Formula One car. But I think that the thing that has really upset Alpine is that, yes, there's been that investment, but they've also committed to a 5,000 kilometer testing program with last year's car with Piastri at the wheel. And that's no, you know, small thing. That's a lot of money investment. That's a lot of time, you know, they're dedicating into his career again, trying to make him as prepared as possible to step into a Formula One car next year. But they want it to be their Formula One car, not their rivals. And the other thing right now, of course, is that Alpine and McLaren are in a really tight fight for fourth position. So we're not talking about losing him to, you know, a top team like Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes, where you think, well, you know, how can we compete with that? They're losing him potentially to their direct rivals. And that's what is really sticking, I think, with Alpine. And of course, that's why this is going to be uh, fought out for such a long time. And then you look at the swap that Nate mentioned. I could potentially see that happening too. But I think there'd have to be a lot in it for Alpine because at the moment you've got Ricardo who's underperforming and in, you know, the autumn of his career, shall we say, to be kind. Whereas we've got Piastri who's fresh clearly a talent for the future if you're going to build a team like i was saying earlier you look at these teams they want they all want to get to the front they all have these five-year plans in place to build their way forward if you want uh, a driver who's going to be a part of that you want them to start young and ricardo doesn't fit that mold as much so it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out but very telling that that press release went out um uh, uh, an unusual time wasn't at the top of the hour didn't have a piastri quote in it no mention from Piastri. It's a, I think it was about 2 a.m. in Australia where Piastri's manager Mark Webber is right now. So yeah, that will make for some interesting phone calls uh, <laughs> over the next 24 hours, I think. I hope the cell service is okay in Iceland and I hope the music's not terribly loud in Budapest so that you guys can stay on high alert as all of this unfolds. What a fascinating sport and that's why people love it. All right, that's the news that was. Let's dive into the results from the weekend. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code FIRSTTAKE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more, more than, than ever. ever. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to gamble responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. This U.S. promotional offer not available in D.C. Mississippi, North Carolina, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. For Massachusetts, 1-800-327-5050. For Iowa, 1-800-BETS-OFF. For Puerto Rico, 1-800-981-0023. For West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. First bet offer for new customers only. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets but expire in seven days. In partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be.
It was a wild weekend in terms of weather, which ranged from, as you guys know, incredibly hot to incredibly wet. And then Sunday saw the lowest temperatures of the weekend. Uh, the Hungarian Grand Prix came down to race strategy and tire management, which I know is your favorite, Lawrence. What did you think of the weekend overall? It's great. We were talking about how the Hungarian Grand Prix really just offers up great races. There was this period when it didn't, and now it does every time. So I'm glad we got um, got what we were hoping for. Uh, yeah, you're right. Down to tire strategy, but you know, there's only one team we can talk about. It's Ferrari and how they messed up. Because if you looked at Friday practice when it was baking hot, Ferrari looked like the team to beat by a long way. Mercedes looked absolutely nowhere. And then we got to race day and it completely spun around. But that's, again, another reason why we love this sport, because you do get these kind of complete changes in what you expect uh, from the cars and track. So, Nate, the top 10 look like this. Verstappen, Lewis, Russell, Sainz, Perez, Leclerc, Norris, Alonso, Ocon and Vettel. And, and I, I don't think that this can be said enough. What Max Verstappen did on Sunday, and I know the Red Bull is an incredible machine but what he did going from 10th on the grid to race winner i thought was absolutely brilliant especially when you consider the struggles we saw a day prior in qualifying that resulted in a new power unit being needed it was his 28th victory in f1 nate do you think that this was the most patient performance we've seen from max verstappen yeah i do i think that's a really good way of putting it and actually we spoke to christian horner on sunday and he said that that start where, as you mentioned, Verstappen was starting right in the middle of the field was the most cautious start. Or No, sorry, he said it was the only time Verstappen's been cautious at the start in his career. He said, you know, he was he was just making sure no, no one went into him. I think last year Bottas went into the back of him and, you know, gave him one of the worst races of his life that followed that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was a really patient, measured approach. And Lawrence and I both kind of turned to each other at different points in, in the race and we're like, we were just like, man, this guy is so good, isn't he? He's just... The pace he's able to pull out of cars is is incredible. And with Verstappen right now, I used to feel like this with Lewis when he had that dominant car. You just look at him and you're like, whatever situation he's in, you're like, I think he's still going to win the race somehow. You just you just never write him off. And um, yeah, he, he 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 waited, waited. He actually he actually credited Red Bull strategy team for the calls they made. You know, they put him in a great position. I think he has complete faith in his team, which. I don't think it's the case with with Ferrari and their drivers. Um, mm, yeah. And yeah, just but just so, so patient. And he was kind of patient when he needed to be. He was relentless when he needed to be. He turned in some great racing moves as well. Um, I think Verstappen right now looks as unbeatable as we've seen a racing driver look for a long time. And I include Lewis in that. I mean, with that package that he's got there, it's it's as close to it's never going to be perfect. But I mean, it, you, you, you know, you're pushing towards that. It's as close to perfect as we've seen uh, an F1 driver and team operate for a long time. It's unbelievable. You mentioned the race strategy and the decisions his team makes, and he has full confidence in that. They were planning on starting him on hards, Lawrence, but then they made a last minute change before the race. And ultimately, I think that, as we saw from what happened to Charles Leclerc, was a great decision by Red Bull. Yeah, it's quite unusual what we saw in Hungary in that one compound was pretty much completely unusual. Uh, so un unusable, and that was the hard. So... Um, but Red Bull had planned to do a one-stop. They were out of position on the grid, as you said, because of that engine problem in qualifying. And so they were looking to one-stop. And that, in theory, was probably one of the quickest ways uh, to, to get to the end of the race. But 
you needed that hard compound to work. And the drivers went out for their reconnaissance laps or their laps on their way to the grid, and they were on soft tyres, and they radioed back and said, guys, we can't even get any heat in the soft tyres. What's it going to be like on the hards? Um, so Red Bull decided at that point, okay, strategy from now on, we don't touch the hard tyres. Mercedes had already made that decision because they'd tried the hard tyres in Friday practice, which not all teams did, which was clearly a mistake for some of them, as we'll come to. But mm -hmm. um, they, tried, they tried the hard tyres then, ruled them out. They weren't going to use them in their strategy. And yet one team did, and it was Ferrari. And it really, um, I think it just sums up this season, doesn't it? That, that you've got a team that has the potential to win. They have the car to win. Leclerc was showing race-winning pace through his first two stints on the medium tyres, but then they went to the hards. And I just I just don't get it. And it, you know, it, it really is the reason why we're now looking at a championship decided as early as we are. I was going to ask you next about Mercedes double podium, but let's just, we'll get there. We'll skip over it because Ferrari was the story again. Max continues to win, but Ferrari steals all the headlines because of the head scratching decisions that are made. I mean, what stood out to you most, Nate, as you're watching all of that go down and the decisions that came from that pit wall? I think the one thing that stood out that was pointed out by a few people was every, before every race we get, Pirelli will send us their, their, optimum strategies they'll say here are the mm -hmm. the kind of the quickest strategies depending on which tires people are starting on for the race they'll have this is the quickest this is the second and it's based on it's based on obviously a perfect race with no interruptions and part of strategy is kind of always in the back of your mind thinking well there might be a safety car etc but those obviously don't take that into account the strategy that the clerk ended up on wasn't any one of those four strategies so you ended up with a situation where you're like obviously they've you know they've planned stuff out before the race but I think it was the first time I've ever watched a race where I was like, I'm pretty sure that most armchair fans watching this will feel like they can do a better job than Ferrari are right now, or, or could have at least seen that what Ferrari were doing wasn't right. And that's the first time I've ever seen that in a in a in a Ferrari team before. You know, I think they've made some some small mistakes this season. I mean, Monaco was a huge mistake. They've made a few other little ones, but this one was just so obvious, and it just struck me that they were the only people it seemed watching the coverage. Who didn't see what was happening you know other drivers had struggled on the hard tire and as lawrence mentioned you know it clearly wasn't the conditions for that for that compound so i think that's what struck me and then what struck me after the race was that we just had this complete doubling down from Mattia bonotto and from carlos Sainz and a little bit from charles leclerc of hey there's nothing really wrong here everything's fine and just and and bonotto said we're not gonna we don't need to make any changes to the team and you just think well you do you clearly clearly there's something wrong so i think that's what struck me most about that performance was just yeah, it was just the sh just just how just how badly it went, and the sheer unwillingness to admit that they made a big mistake. Because I think everybody watching it thought that was the case. I think I previously had asked the two of you, does this warrant a change in terms of? And we've talked about maybe rearranging people and personnel in terms of what their actual role is on race day or leading up to it. But when he said, you know, there's nothing to change, I too thought. Gosh, it might not come at the summer break, but something certainly needs to change after the season because you essentially have watched the constructor and the driver's championship slip through your fingertips. Lawrence, I'm curious, does this kind of lack of race strategy or poor decisions remind you of a team or a team principal or just an overall team from the past? Does these kind of blunders remind you of anybody from the past that have just watched a championship slip right through their fingertips when they started off so well? I'm not sure it does, which is really concerning, isn't it? Um, not yeah. at the top of my head. I mean, potentially Ferrari in other years have uh, thrown away titles. But if I think back to 2018, a lot of that came from uh, from Sebastian himself making mistakes. There were also some 
uh, strategy errors and there were some reliability issues. So that, funny enough, the nearest comparison that I can think of in the in the recent past was it's also right. is also <laughs> Ferrari. Yeah. But um, I mean, it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Because really, what this came down to was their modelling of that hard tire. So they have an idea of how that hard tire is going to behave when they put it on the car. And this is how Mattia Bonotto justified the decision. He said, "Well, we." plan to put on that tyre, and we knew the first few laps, it wouldn't really work properly. But then after about 10 or 11 laps, it would get to a point where it's actually performing better than the medium tyre, which was the one that uh, Verstappen was on. And then they were looking at a 30 lap stint. So they were thinking, well, for the majority of the time left in the race, the the tyre is going to be performing better. But how did they get that so wrong? That's what I want to know, because uh, they modelled this on past experience, uh, both Budapest, you know, understanding what that track's like for tyres, and also on the tyres themselves. They've used these compounds of tyres. We, you know, talk about compounds, it's a type of rubber on the tyre, other tracks. So they've got a huge amount of data on it. Uh, And then, of course, they have practice to play around with it. And we know that they didn't go on the hard in practice, and that was uh, obviously a gap in their knowledge. But whoever is, you know, building these, you know, these strategies, they need to rely on this kind of data. They need to have confidence in it. And the problem now is that not only was that data wrong, it will also raise questions further down the line. So they might be, they might not be as aggressive as they could be at another time because they're just worried, well, what if our time modeling is wrong? So it's it's a really big issue that's going to be hard for them to get out of. And I it's it's always hard to say, isn't it? You know, do you just fire ahead of strategy? Is it as easy as that? Well, Inevitably not, because you've got to find someone to replace them. You've got to bring someone in. Ferrari is quite an unusual team in that. It's, you know, one of two based in Italy. And then a lot of the knowledge and the kind of, uh, you know, engineering prowess is, is based in the UK because so many of the F1 teams are there, seven of them. So, yeah, it's really hard for Ferrari sometimes to bring across engineers. And also there's a cultural difference there. It's just sure. it's just a different way of going racing at Ferrari. That's not to say it's wrong, but so far this year, clearly something hasn't been working. So um, it's interesting to see how they're going to get out of it. And yeah, I... I I asked that question to Mattia, you know, do you just put this down to bad luck or has something got to change going forward? And he said, it's not bad luck and nothing has to change. And I was just like, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to have another nine races of mistakes, drop points. And, you know, this stat that keeps coming up, Charles Leclerc was leading the championship by 43 points after the third round in Australia. And he's now 80 points behind. That is a huge swing. Like, how does that happen, you know, in such a short period of time? And, uh, you know, I think if Ferrari are honest with themselves, uh, they'll be able to look at it. And it's it's not because they don't have the car to do it. The car has the performance. And this is the real shame is that for years we've been waiting for Ferrari to come up with a car that can challenge for a title. Now they have it and it's just all disappearing in front of them. I think that's the most frustrating part is when you watch that car and it's working well, it's got so much speed. They should be doing so much better. And, and that, I think, is what frustrates a lot of people tuning in and rooting for Ferrari. You mentioned the swing with Charles, but there's also been a massive swing for them and the constructors as well. And so now they're super far off from Red Bull. And they're also being pressured by Mercedes coming up in third on the other end. And you know, speaking of Mercedes, another back-to-back double podium for them. And while it might have been a little bittersweet for George Russell, who started on pole after an incredible final qualifying lap, you know, Lewis had a big smile on his face after climbing seventh to second. You know, Lawrence, you were questioning if Mercedes would succeed on this track. Did they prove you wrong or did some of that luck fall their way, as we mentioned earlier? No, they, they proved me wrong. Um, I'm not ashamed <laughs> to admit that. I think what happened and, and what they said, so, you know, talking to 
people at the team afterwards, it was that they really found the sweet spot with these tyres. And also they'd done their groundwork. They'd realised the hard tyres were not the ones to go on. So they'd based their whole strategy around knowing uh, where they were. They, As I said, actually on Friday, things didn't look good at all. The car's performance looked nowhere. Uh, but they learned some very valuable lessons there, managed to turn it around for Saturday and get it bang on for Sunday. Um, as we mentioned at the very start of the podcast, the weather changed you know, dramatically from uh, the Friday to the Sunday. So they got maybe a little bit of luck that their setup really just got the tyres working uh, in a way that clearly wasn't the case on the Ferrari in the cooler temperatures. But um, it, 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 is, it, it is a sign for optimism. You know, it, it, is, it is a good sign for, for the team. But I don't think they're completely out of the woods yet. They're not fooling themselves thinking that every track they go to they're going to be right in contention for victory. Because an interesting thing that came up afterwards was, obviously, Lewis Hamilton was out of position on the grid. Uh, he qualified seventh because his DRS, which is the flat that allows you to go faster along the straights and reduce drag, didn't work in qualifying. And that cost mm -hmm. him massively, uh, leaving him down seventh. Had he been able to qualify, perhaps, pole position, that's where George, his teammate George Russell was, and put in the race performance that he put in from there, there's a real question about whether Mercedes could have won this race. So um, it's, it's, it's a good sign, but I think they realise that they might go to Spa after the summer break and it won't be quite the same. But they're definitely making steps in the right direction. They're making th these lessons that are teaching them, you know, how to use the tyres, how to run the car, what ride height to run at, stuff like that. It's clearly all paying off. And so they are gradually, gradually getting back. But that's the only way you can do it in Formula 1. I think George Russell would say it was a mega weekend. That seemed to be his uh, favorite word after Saturday's qualifying. All right, outside the top three, Nate, anyone else on the track that kind of caught your eye positively, negatively? Yeah, there was. Um, I thought Norris, um, in terms of qualifying, was fantastic. I think he got up to fourth on the grid um, and is really just kind of driving driving the wheels off of that car. Um, and yeah, I mean, he he's he's kind of, we talked about Ricardo, but his form is kind of what's making that so difficult and so kind of confusing uh, for McLaren going forward is that they've got one driver who is still driving really well in an underperforming car, but is at least getting the most out of it. Ricardo's underperforming in an underperforming car. So yeah, he stood out. I think he finished seventh overall, but that seemed to be the best available to those teams outside the top three. So I think Norris has been super impressive. Um, I was also impressed at Alpine in a different way, putting the hard tire on both their cars um, mm -hmm. at the end there when that didn't seem like the right thing. But um yeah, Norris stood out to me. And I think um, there were so many storylines from this race that kind of overshadowed that Norris, Norris put in a really good performance. Lawrence, how about you? Yeah, I'd agree with Norris, especially as if you look at his strategy, it was actually the same as what Ferrari were trying to do. He went hard tyre at the end and made it work, which kind of suggests that maybe Ferrari's wasn't quite as far off as possible, you know, as it seemed. But then again, when you're racing in the midfield, you know, it's, it's not quite as intense, it's not quite as tight sometimes as when you're racing at the front. And also the guys Norris was racing against, as Nate just mentioned, had also gone onto the hard tyre. So perhaps all of them could have had a much better race uh, without that decision. Um, the, other, the other interesting storyline over the weekend was uh, Haas and the updates that were only on Kevin Magnussen's car. I felt like we didn't get a real clear view of what they're like, um, other than how they look visually, which is very, very similar to the Ferrari. No surprise there, because a lot of um, Haas's design team are actually based in Maranello, up Ferrari's factory, albeit in a sealed off different room where they can't 
talk directly to Ferrari, but it's clear that um, having so much of their the underside of their car, bits and pieces, gearbox, internals, all sorts of stuff from Ferrari, which is entirely allowed within the regulations, they've developed in a very similar way. Um, but disappointing that obviously Magnussen didn't get the most of it over the race weekend. Part of that was down to some front wing damage early in the race. But with these updates, you always have to be a little bit patient. You know, you can bring a big update, expect a big a big step, but you've got to then tailor the setup of the car around it to get the most from it. So. I think that's the team to keep an eye on going forward because clearly we know the Ferrari is very fast and it seems like Haas's development isn't a million miles off Ferrari as they as they try and um, you know keep themselves with their heads above water in the midfield. No doubt. All right, before I let you guys go, we have to hit my favorite segment. You know what it is. The doghouse. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, so we've had 13 races so far this season. Teams and drivers now have a summer break, a much-needed summer break. But I want to know who you would put in the doghouse for the summer based on past performances for the 2022 season. Lawrence, we'll start with you. Nate, start thinking. I might, I might think we might have the same answer on this one, but I'm going with Ferrari. It has to be, it has to be Ferrari, doesn't it? Because here's a team, like I said earlier, they finally got the car right. You know, they done all that hard work, all those years of research into this new set of regulations, putting it all together, getting it right, goes on track, impressively fast, you know, wins the two of the uh, first three races, and then issue after issue have fallen apart. So, yeah, Ferrari are in the doghouse for me, uh, specifically, I mean, you've got to really put the blame on Mattia Bonotto, I think, at the top. You know, he's he, you need to lead by example. I think too many times he's... Uh, allowed his team to kind of make mistakes and then perhaps there's not been the learning from it and uh, also maybe there's not been any repercussions and I feel like while Mercedes for example made um made, had a lot of success with a no blame culture you know there's no one ever ever anyone's fault it was just the processes but then you saw change happen and you saw them uh not make the same mistake twice with Ferrari I feel like we're just in a bit of a loop and that 80 points you know says it all at the top of the drivers championship yeah, I'm glad you gave me some time to think because it gave me a chance to think of something that isn't Ferrari, which was difficult good, actually because mine good. was going to be. But I, for for the sake of us being different, I'll I'll add another team into the doghouse. Actually, if we're basing it on the 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 first kind of six months, I'd put McLaren in there. Um, and the reason I say that is because I think at the start of the season we thought there'd be four teams right up there at the front, and there's only three. And McLaren really hasn't hasn't joined that pack, and they kept talking for years and years like this rule change is going to get us up there. And while their performances have been consistent, I don't think, you know, Ricardo hasn't performed. I think there is a deeper, a deeper issue there. They haven't delivered 
the car they said they were going to. And for me, that's actually hugely disappointing. I think it's been overshadowed by a lot of other different storylines, but really McLaren are kind of still just there in limbo in that in that midfield and they're fighting Alpine for fourth when I think they should be up there at least trying to fight Mercedes for third. And, you know, McLaren have been nowhere for years, really. And um, yeah, they it seems to be the case again now. So I'd put them in the doghouse, but clearly the doghouse belongs to Ferrari. Maybe we'll yeah. just put McLaren in like a like a mini doghouse next to it, a smaller one. It it's doesn't a, need to be as it's big. A big red, very yeah. red doghouse. Would you consider maybe putting Mercedes in there just because the car was so far off for so many weeks? Or does the progress, I guess, cut into that? Or the fact that they were in the drivers' championship so long last season that that garnered so much of their attention and focus? Would would you consider putting them in? No, I think that's a very good shout. Um, Mercedes expected to be fighting at the front from the very beginning. And clearly there were some fundamental issues with their concept that the other teams have had to some extent, but not as extreme. And there's progress there, which is good, but you're right. I mean, I think this could take a while for Mercedes to get right back at the front. We have seen some progress, but realistically this year, you know, can, can they get back to winning a race? It's still a question mark. They they came close in Hungary, but they're still not quite there. And for a team with that kind of resources, that those you know, brilliant engineers throughout. That's not really good enough as well. So yeah, good shout. Okay, thank you. I, sorry, I just uh, Piastri's just tweeted that he won't be he won't be driving for uh, Alpine next year. It's just popped up. Now, Oscar Piastri has tweeted. I understand that without my agreement, Alpine have put out a press release late this afternoon that I am driving for them next year. This is wrong. I've not signed a contract with Alpine for 2023. I will not be driving for Alpine next year. That is pretty huge so so what does that say about the relationship between he and alpine and all of the resources that you guys have just listed for us that they've kind of put into this young driver because they they really wanted him to be the future of alpine i think i mean it shows first of all i I think this is i mean alpine i cannot believe they're in this situation this is unbelievable they've let a a two-time world champion and a potential future world champion slip through their fingers in the space of a week but i think it shows you that they have been trying to, I, I wrote it in copy, they've been trying to have their cake and eat it. You know, they've been trying to walk this tightrope of having both Alonso and Piastri on a, on a piece of string. And I don't actually blame Piastri for being annoyed at that side of it. I think Lawrence was right earlier that they have laid on all of these things for him away from Formula 1 to, to um, you know, to kind of ready him for it. But I don't know, I, I can understand why he'd be frustrated. He wanted to be on the grid this year. And there's definitely some bad blood there. And after a tweet like that, I mean... We talked about Alonso not being able to walk into Alpine, you know, very, very comfortably. Piastri, I don't know. I don't know how, you know, how, how you kind of rebuild that situation. So, yeah, um, I'm glad that didn't come through when I was in the middle of a festival in Budapest. But this is just as just entertaining. Yeah, there, there's so much more to this story, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's yeah. crazy because we've seen Oscar at races this year. He goes and travels to races in Alpine team kit. Uh, I actually was in a go-kart race against him in France. And, you know, he was there. He was enjoying the barbecue. He's such a nice guy. And so something clearly behind the scenes has gone very, very wrong for this to happen. And it is remarkable because Alpine twice now. So they've had the position where Fernando Alonso has said that uh, to them that he'll drive. And then they found out via a press release that he won't. And then they've kind of doubled down and said, all right, well, Oscar Piastri's ours. And then Oscar's come out and presumably without much conversation with them said, nope, I'm not driving for you either. That is, it's incredible. Um, But it will be fascinating to see how this plays out. And also, I mean, Right now, I imagine there's a lot of people on phones to their agents in Formula mm-hmm. One. Daniel Ricciardo will be one of them because, 
uh, clearly it looks like Oscar Piastri is lining himself up uh, for a McLaren drive. And um, yeah, Ricardo has been telling us uh, for some time now that he has a contract. The options are on his side, whether it gets broken or not. And so hearing this news, uh, he's got to be wondering uh, what's going on for next year in his world as well. Meanwhile, yeah, the- of course, there's that Alpine seat available now. You know, there's lots of drivers who would love to be in that. Uh, Oscar, clearly not one of them, but there's lots of woods. So, uh, yeah, there will be a huge amount of um, messages and phone calls going on in the next 24 hours to try and figure out who ends up where. I mean, this is just great, great drama. This is, you don't always get this in a driver market, but this is classic F1. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a good timing, by the way, for us. That's why yeah. a midweek pod, not a bad idea. Exactly. I mean, people listening, that was genuinely me seeing it and being like, oh my God, like going to have to work out how to cover this. Um, yeah, brilliant day. So um, I, I suppose we better all wrap up so we can go. I was going to say, I need to get you guys on, on your way so you can <laughs> start writing. Uh, here's where we stand going into summer break. Just take a quick look at the driver standings and then the constructors. Max Verstappen is in the lead at 258, followed by Charles Leclerc at 178, and Sergio Perez rounds out the top three with 173 points right behind Charles Leclerc. You've got George Russell, Carlos Sainz, Lewis Hamilton in sixth, Lando Norris in seventh, Esteban Ocon at Alpine in eighth, Valtteri Botas at Alfa Romeo in ninth, and Fernando Alonso in tenth, rounding out that top ten. You can read the rest for yourself. And then if we switch over to the constructors' standings, here you go, Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes close behind in third Alpine McLaren, as we mentioned, as in, in the fight for fourth and then Alfa Romeo, Haas, Alfatari, Aston Martin and Williams. That's where we stand at summer break. You two happy writing. Enjoy your vacations if you are actually able to take them. I hope so. That'll do it for us this week on Unlapped. Just because the F1 season is on a break doesn't mean we're taking a break. You may see us with some different faces on Unlapped over the next few weeks, but the content will keep on coming. We've got some surprises up our sleeves, and if you have an idea for a summer break episode, drop us in the comments. Tell us what you want to see, what you want to hear about, what you want to learn about. Tweet at us. We're always down to try new things. In the meantime, Max Verstappen and Red Bull head into the summer riding high while Ferrari may need to enroll in uh, strategy summer school. That wasn't my joke. That was Dave's. Uh, The next time we see some racing action will be in Belgium as the drivers head to Spa. So, Uh, We'll see you next week. Remember to like this video, subscribe to ESPN's YouTube for more F1 content. And if you're listening, give us a five-star review. It uh, helps other people find our show. I'm Katie George. He's Nate Saunders, and he's Lawrence Edmondson. And we'll catch you next time on Unlapped. Cheers. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.